We just sang, I'm starting to notice that you are speaking, and we sang, I want to feel what you feel, and I want to see what you see. So, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to to preach you, or maybe you preach us, whatever the case, Lord God, be glorified in us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is McDonald Carey, and these are the days of our lives. How many of you remember that? Yeah, if, if you were a kid that grew up in the 60s, you uh, remember that. Believe it or not, back in the olden days, uh, well, most of you here would believe this. There were only four channels on TV. So if you had the flu and had to stay home from school, you laid on the couch and you watched As the World Turns or These Are the Days of Our Lives. I don't remember any storylines, just like a whole lot of drama. Uh, By that I mean a bunch of people talking, 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 and feeling their emotions together. Kind of reminded me of church. My dad was a pastor and I loved him dearly, but to me, pastoring just looked like a whole lot of drama. At the time, at our church, everyone was talking about warm, everybody was sharing warm fuzzies and their feelings, but I didn't really trust warm fuzzies because I learned that sometimes they would come back to bite you. And a lot of times they were fake. I wanted to be a geologist. I'm a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island. I love that song. At the time, I don't think I really understood what they were saying. But I liked, I liked rocks. Well, anyway, if I wasn't sick, the days of our lives made me sick. I still associate the word drama with nausea. But I would be okay. I would be okay back then if I could just hang in there until about 4.30. Because that's when Star Trek came on. What's the matter, Spock? There's something disquieting about these creatures. Oh, don't tell me you've got a feeling. Don't be insulting, Doctor. I see no practical use for them. Does everything have to have a practical use for you? It is a human characteristic to love little animals, especially if they're attractive in some way. Doctor, I am well aware of human characteristics. I am frequently inundated by them, but I have trained myself to put up with practically anything. Spock, I don't know too much about these little tribbles yet, but there is one thing that I have discovered. What is that, Doctor? I like them better than I like you. Doctor, they do indeed have one redeeming characteristic. What's that? They do not talk too much. At the moment, that is all we can do, except hope for a rational explanation. Hope? I always thought that was a human failing, Mr. Spock. True, Doctor. Constant exposure does result in a certain degree of contamination. The release of emotions, Mr. Spock, is what keeps us healthy. Emotionally healthy, that is. That may be, Doctor. However, I have noted that the healthy release of emotion is frequently very unhealthy 
for those closest to you. I am in control of my emotions. Control of my emotions. <laughs> my duty is to... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> two, two, four, six, six, six times six. <laughs> I love Mr. Spock. And I loved how he handled his emotions with math. Six, six times six. I once read that the renowned French mathematician Thomas DeLagny passed 36 hours in silence, total silence, on his deathbed. He did not react when his beloved spoke to him, but when someone said, do you still know how much 67 to the second power is? He smiled, answered 4,489 and then he died. For Mr. Spock, logic is unemotional, and emotion is illogical. I studied uh, geology, but um, God kind of tricked me into becoming a pastor, and so I've thought a lot about logic and emotion, or science and faith. The Bible has a word for logic, a very obvious word, and the word is logos. It's usually translated word, but it's also translated reason because that's what it means, logic or reason. The Bible doesn't have such an obvious word for emotion or feelings, and yet I'm fairly sure that folks in the Bible had feelings. In the Old Testament, there are all sorts of words that describe what we would call emotion. In the New there is one word group in particular that probably comes closest to our word emotion. It's a group of words all based on the verb pasco, or the noun pathos, or pathema, which gets translated as passion or suffering, which confuses us. For we talk about Christ's passion as the very definition of the good, and yet we also talk about passions as something that can be quite evil. And yet it all makes a little sense when you realize that to have pathos in classical Greek, to have pathos is to be affected by something that you cannot control, like a cross or an emotion. And to be apathos is to be apathetic. It's to be unmoved, unmotivated, or dead. There once was a man who saw that love um, produced arguments and jealousy and sorrow. He saw that love sometimes led to immense pain. He decided to keep his life undiminished by the wretched drama of love. When he died, he walked up to God, presented his life undiminished, unsoiled, unmarred. He proudly said, here is my life. And God said, what life? Well, no matter what, for most of us, drama appears to be a problem. 
So we either try to ignore emotions, we get apathetic, or we try to manufacture emotions. We get all dramatic, which isn't actually experiencing emotion, but faking emotion, which will make you nauseous. So like I was saying, for most of us, drama appears to be a problem. I mean, if you really listen closely to to our prayers, you'll discover that we almost constantly pray for a life without drama. Even if we're trying to be all dramatic about it. You know what I mean? Well, Lord, just, 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 God, let the trip go smoothly. Don't let there be any complications. Keep me safe, Lord God. Keep me safe and keep everyone around me safe. Safety first. Just no drama, please. No drama. So it's a little shocking to hear St. Paul pray that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his pathema, his passions, his suffering, his drama. We like passion plays, but not actual passion. In the fall, we'll start a new series, but recently I've been scanning the Old Testament looking for stories that jump out at me and maybe ones that I haven't preached on. A few weeks ago, I read the story of Joseph all in one sitting, and I thought, wow, this is like super dramatic. And then I thought, wow, all the drama was predestined. He was predestined for drama. You would think that if everything was going according to plan, there would be no drama. I mean, isn't that why we make plans? So there'd be no drama? And yet God plans the drama. Now, I'm counting on the fact that you basically know the story. It takes up about a third of the book of Genesis. So I'm going to abbreviate it and read a few choice morsels. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. Genesis 37, Joseph is 17 years old, and he has some, some dreams. Joseph is the firstborn son of Jacob Israel by Jacob Israel's true love, Rachel. Joseph has 11 brothers, 10 older brothers born to Leah and the slave girls Bilhah and Zilpah, and one younger brother also born of Rachel named Benjamin. Eventually, the 12 brothers become the nation of Israel. Scripture tells us that because Reuben, the firstborn of Leah, had sex with his stepmother Bilhah, the birthright passed to Joseph, Jacob's favorite. So the 10 Older brothers are extremely jealous of, of uh, Joseph. So 17-year-old Joseph has a dream. And he makes the apparent mistake, you know, of telling his brothers. He dreams that during the harvest, his brother's sheaves bow down to his sheaf. And then Joseph dreams that the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to him. And apparently, God has given him these dreams. How many of you had dreams when you were 17 years old? Any of you? And how many of you saw all of those dreams come true? Probably less of you. Well, Joseph dreams a pretty amazing dream. Sun, moon, and 11 stars uh, seem to at least represent Joseph's dad and mom, who's dead now, and his 11 brothers. But sun, moon, and stars might also be sun, moon, and stars. And as David writes in Psalm 148.3, sun, moon, and stars praise Yahweh, the Lord. 
Well, already we've got hope, jealousy, a boatload of confusing emotions, all amped up on like steroids, jacked up because of this dream. His father sends him on an errand to his brothers who are out in the field herding sheep. Uh, they see him coming, Genesis thirty-seven nineteen. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him in one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But his oldest brother, Reuben, convinces them to throw him in the pit alive. And then his older brother, Judah, convinces them to sell him, so they get something for it, to sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then take him to Egypt and sell him as a slave. The ten older brothers then tell Jacob Israel that Joseph was attacked by a wild animal, and uh, Jacob just will not be comforted, Jacob Israel, Genesis 37, 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons, all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to hell, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. That's a lot of drama. Trust, betrayal, dreams, shattered dreams, unspeakable loss, confusion. And you wonder how anyone survives. In particular, how did Joseph survive emotionally? Well, Joseph becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And God blesses Joseph in Potiphar's house such that Joseph is put in charge of all that Potiphar has. But Potiphar's wife thinks that Joseph is a thing that she wants to have. So when she, he refuses her advances, she accuses him of rape. And Potiphar throws him in the king's dungeon. You remember that part, right? Lust, sex, rape, blessings, cursing, dreams, shattered dreams. That's a lot of drama. In prison, God blesses Joseph again. The keeper of the prison puts Joseph in charge of the activities of the prison. And one night, he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer who had been thrown in the prison with him. But when the baker is executed and the cupbearer is restored to Pharaoh, the cupbearer, who said he would remember Joseph, forgets Joseph for two, two years. But when Pharaoh has a dream, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And as you know, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh believes Joseph for some reason, puts him in a position of power, only second to himself and gives him his own daughter as a bride. But this is 13 years after his brothers threw him in the pit. He's 30 years old now. Well, for seven years, Joseph oversees an abundant harvest. But then, as he had prophesied from Pharaoh's dream, the famine hits Egypt and Canaan, and Joseph begins to sell the Pharaoh's grain. Fearing starvation, Jacob sends the ten older brothers to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph is now like 38 or 39 years old. He's clean-shaven. He's dressed like Egyptian royalty because that's really what he is now. Uh, the brothers don't recognize him. Uh, they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Genesis 42, verse 8. And Joseph recognized his brother, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. The brothers then defend themselves, saying, we're all the sons of one man. The youngest is at home, and one brother is no more. Joseph puts them in prison for three days. Three days. Think of that. Genesis forty-two eighteen. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this, and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined 
where you are in custody here, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they, they did so. Then they said to one another, they bring, they bring Benjamin to him, or surrender Benjamin to him. Uh, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. That's drama. Joseph then comes back, takes his older brother Simeon, who of course, Simeon doesn't know this, in, into custody, keeps him in custody, and he sends the rest off with sacks of grain. But unbeknownst to the nine brothers, he's commanded his servants to put his brother's money back in those sacks of grain. So this is like a judgment of grace. When the brothers see the money on the way, when they see the money in the sacks, they freak out. In biblical lingo, their hearts just fail them. When they arrive at home, they're all filled with fear. And Jacob Israel says this, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? Reuben says, Dad, kill my two sons if I don't return with Benjamin to you. But Jacob, he refuses. He refuses until a year or so later when they had eaten all the grain and they're beginning to starve. It's then that Judah pleads with with Jacob, Judah pleads with Jacob, his dad, to let them take Benjamin back to Egypt to get Simeon and more grain. Genesis 43, verse 9. I will be a pledge, says Judah, of Benjamin's safety. He's ready to die for his little brother now. From my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and say, him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And at that, Jacob relents, and he lets them take Benjamin back down to Egypt. When they arrive in Egypt, they confess that they had found the money in their sacks, but Joseph's steward responds as Joseph obviously instructed him to respond, saying, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then Joseph arrives sees his little brother Benjamin, um, his mother's other son, sees his brother Benjamin standing with the brothers that had betrayed him and condemned him to death and bondage. Genesis 43.30, then Joseph hurried out seeing after he sees them, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And then if you know the story, Joseph eats separately because it was considered an abomination for Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. But Joseph sends immense portions to Benjamin, five times more than to the brothers. But the other brothers don't appear to be jealous now. In fact, they drink and they, verse 34, are merry with him, merry with Benjamin. So once again, Joseph fills their sacks with grain, but this time he has his servants put his chalice, his cup, in Benjamin's sack. As the brothers are leaving Egypt, Joseph's servants overtake the brothers and accuse them of someone taking the cup, of of repaying good with evil. The brothers say, whichever of us is found with the chalice will surely die, and the rest of us will be your slaves. When the chalice is found in Benjamin's sack, well, they all tear their clothes in grief and in terror. In custody at Joseph's house now, Judah, Judah throws himself at the feet of Joseph, crying out. Genesis 44, 16, 
God has found out the guilt of your slaves. In agony, for most of chapter 44, Judah explains the situation to Joseph, verse 20. We have a father, an old man, and and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your slave remain, let me remain instead of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Genesis 45, then Joseph could not control himself. Highly illogical, according to Mr. Spock. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept out loud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here because God sent me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept on them. That's a lot of drama. And of course, as you can imagine, there's much more drama when they go back and they tell Jacob. 45-26. His heart became numb for he did not believe him. But of course, they finally convinced him. Genesis 46, 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept. And on his neck, a good while, Israel said to Joseph, Now just let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you are still alive. Drama, drama. But Jacob, Israel... He lives much longer. Joseph, you know, he saves Egypt. Then Jacob gathers all his sons. He blesses them with the birthright going to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis 49, 33. When Jacob finished commanding blessing his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. The Egyptians and the Hebrews, they go to Canaan together to bury Jacob Israel. The mourning is so great, the grieving is so great, that the Canaanites named the place Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning, the grieving of Egypt. When they return to Egypt, absent the father, their father, the brothers, the 11 brothers begin to fear. And now this is our text, Genesis 50, verse 15. They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive Nassau the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. Now, 
You may have noticed that this is the dream that Joseph had when he was 17 years old. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. And thus he comforted them. And that's a hell of a lot of drama. And yet the dream happened. And I think it is happening. You meant it. Hasab planned it. You planned it for evil. But God planned it for good. So number one question. What is it? Well, it is one day, right? And yet it is all the days that are dependent upon that one day. And that might just be every day, including this day, for the promised seed was in Judah. And remember, Joseph saves Judah. And miraculously, perhaps even in Joseph, according to the flesh, Jesus comes through the line of Judah. And yet, according to Scripture, the birthright belonged to Joseph. And the brothers had been jealous of the birthright. Well, it was a hell of a lot of drama. They planned it for evil, and yet God planned it, all that drama, for good. So question number two, whose plan works? Whose plan happens? In other words, who gets his will and what is God's will? Well, God gets his will. And what was his will? To preserve life, life. Question number three, whose life or or what life? Well, Israel's life, right? Jacob and his sons. But also Egypt, all of Egypt. Joseph saves all of Egypt. And maybe all life, for Jesus is the life. He's the promised seed. He's the remnant of Israel. You meant it. You planned it for evil. But God meant it. God planned it for good. And so the dream, Joseph's dream, that was God's dream, came true. But how did the dream come true? Did Joseph sit in Potiphar's prison planning ways that he could make his brothers bow down to him? Did Joseph make the dream come true? Or did God make the dream come true? Or did God make the dream come true through Joseph? How did the dream come true? How did Joseph live such a graceful, beautiful, and glorious life? In other words, how did Joseph not kill himself in prison? And how did Joseph not kill his brothers 20 years later? How did Joseph become such a vessel of mercy, to use Paul's words? How did Joseph get through this from the start? How did he do it? Well, it seems to me, number one, 
somehow, and I think this is the miracle, Joseph didn't trust his circumstances, and at least a bit he came to have faith in the dream. Or maybe faith was the dream in Joseph. Number two, somehow, and I think this is also a miracle, Joseph hoped that it was God's dream. Or maybe hope was God's dream in Joseph. And so Joseph knew that the dream was predestined to happen. And so no matter what evil might happen, evil could only be part of God's plan, which is the good. And number three, he wept and wept and wept and wept and wept in sorrow and in joy. In other words, he allowed himself to be emotional. He wept. Have you ever tried to make yourself weep? You tried to force yourself to weep? If you succeed at that, you probably aren't really weeping, you're acting, which is fake drama, and it will make everyone nauseous. <laughs> Happens in church a lot. Now, we all have plenty of legitimate reasons to weep in sorrow and in joy, but to really weep, you have to allow yourself. You have to let yourself weep. And I think there's a word for that, and the word is forgive. Western Christians, and particularly Western evangelical Christians, have turned that word forgiveness into a small thing that has to do with the transactional exchange that's sometimes referred to as penal substitutionary atonement, which is partly right and yet terribly wrong, and the subject of other sermons, which you can access by going uh, to the footnotes to the transcript of this message. But in the New Testament, the word usually translated forgive is not a small word. It's not a small word that explains why God won't endlessly torture you for cheating on your taxes. It's a huge word that explains everything that's anything. It's the Greek word aphiomi, which is translated forgive, allow, or let. As in, let there be light. Let there be trees. Let there be man in my own image and likeness. So when Jesus cries, Father, forgive them, he's, he's crying out, Father, let them. And when Joseph forgives, he's, he's doing the same. In Genesis 50, the Hebrew word translated forgive, nasaw, is usually translated lift, carry, or, or bear. So in the name of the fathers, the brothers asked Joseph to bear their sin. And he did. Love bears all things. He forgave it. He wept it. Because he bore it. And because he bore it, his mourning turned into dancing. His sorrow turned into joy. But how, how could Joseph bear such emotional pain? How did he just weep like that? You know, Jesus wept. But in Hades, they weep and gnash their teeth, according to Jesus. I think that describes someone who needs to weep but won't let themselves weep. And so they grit their teeth, you know, 
like a child resenting discipline, or a man trying to prove that he's capable, logical, and in control, a man in control, or, or a Vulcan in control. But how did Joseph weep with such freedom? How could he bear to feel what he must have felt by Genesis chapter 50? How do you bear to feel the feelings that you actually allow yourself to feel? Have you ever read a book or watched a movie and started to weep in sorrow? And then perhaps maybe later weep in joy? How is it that you allow yourself to feel what you feel when watching a good movie? Isn't it because, number one, you believe the dream? Someone told you this is a good movie or this is a good book. Number two, you know then that everything bad is intended for good. So tears of sorrow, they're not wasted. They're predestined to turn into joy. And number three, this is big, you you don't believe that your identity is dependent on the drama in the film. In other words, your ego is detached from the story. You didn't write the story, and you are not determined by the story. In other words, you think to yourself, it's not my story. And so you allow yourself to feel a little of what the characters feel. So you find yourself weeping with those who weep and laughing with those who laugh. Your ego is detached from the story, and so you allow yourself to identify with the characters in the story. You don't create the characters in the story, and yet, and this is the miracle, the characters in the story might just create you. In other words, you may lose yourself in the drama and then discover the drama in you. And now it is your story. So you watch Superman without fear. And then you become a little more courageous like Superman. And you recognize Superman within you. Maybe you watch Titanic without fear. Fear for yourself. And then you think, you know, even if it hurts, I'd like to love my wife and sacrifice for my wife the way Jack loved Rose and sacrificed for Rose. And then you begin to find Jack in you, even, even without thinking, especially without thinking, without self-consciousness. Or, or you watch The Passion of the Christ, and then one day you realize that Christ has become the passion within you. And that's the miracle. But if you watch a movie and you don't believe the dream and so you don't trust that the author is good and yet you begin to identify with the story, you'll check out of the story when the the movie gets too frightening or too intense. You'll you'll get busy like my son Coleman used to get busy. I remember when he was like four-year-olds and we'd go to the movie, I'd say, Coleman, are you scared? He goes, no, Dad, I just have to adjust the seat and tie my shoes and I have things to do, but I'm not scared, Daddy. If you don't believe the dream, trust the author, and yet identify with the story, you'll walk out of the movie at the scary part. In which case, your psyche will be stuck on the last frame of the movie that you saw, the one that freaked you out of the story. You'll try to tear a page from the novel, in which case you won't be able to understand the novel, and you'll carry that page with you in your pocket. You'll carry it with you at least until you let the author put it back in the book and you begin to see that the tears of sorrow actually turn into tears of joy. Brothers weeping and laughing together as God 
always intended. You see, I'm just saying, maybe Joseph lived his life the way you read a great book or watch a, a good movie. He experienced it, somehow detached from his own ego, for he knew that no matter what, he was the beloved. <laughs> and no matter what, God was the author of the story, not his brothers, not Potiphar, not himself. In other words, not Mises, but somebody else. He learned to live his life detached from his ego, the illusion that he was the author of his own story, and yet by the end of the story, he becomes exactly who it was that he had always truly been. Not the dreamer, but the dream. And now all of my words will fail, and yet I'm still going to try. Joseph didn't live his life. His life lived him. Or maybe I could put it this way. Joseph didn't live his life until he let the life live him. And that life came to him as drama. And now before you write me off, let me show you a picture of the life. The life is hanging on a tree in the middle of a garden at the edge of space and time in the sanctuary of your own soul. This is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the logos. This is the logic of God. This is the logic of love. This is the emotion behind all motion in this is love. So what is emotion? Well, I don't think it's a lack of logic, Mr. Spock. I think it's actually more logic than you or I can comprehend. It's logic that comprehends us. It's the logic of love. And God is love. You cannot comprehend love, but when love comprehends you, you experience its movements as feelings of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, gentleness, temperance, freedom, compassion, the logic of love. It compels you to move, to emote, to do what love wills to do, and to do it in freedom. And yet Spock, Spock really does have a valid point, right? When he says, Doctor, I have noted that the healthy release of emotion is frequently very unhealthy for those closest to you. In other words, there are unhealthy emotions. So what is an unhealthy emotion? Well, emotions move us, right? Like a jet airplane or a, a race car. But what is the most unhealthy or dangerous type of jet airplane or race car? Is it one that can't even move, like a pile of junk sitting in a junkyard? Or is it one that's moving at several hundred miles an hour with just one screw that's about to jiggle loose? So what are unhealthy emotions? What's the unhealthy emotion of like a Judas or a Hitler? 
Isn't it good emotion that's been infected with a lie? And what's the lie if not I, I, Peter, I can comprehend the logic of love and I can use the logic of love to save myself and my world. Judas wanted to save Judah. And his logic told him they knew the solution, to turn Jesus in. Hitler wanted to save Germany, and his logic told him that he knew how. So he took vengeance, he began to judge, and he tried to save Germans, and everyone died. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason, wrote Chesterton. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason, his logos. The madman is the man who's been to the tree in the middle of the garden and listened to a lie. Take knowledge from the tree and make yourself in the image of God. The madman is the man who considers the logos to be his own private possession. And so what does he do? He crucifies love and the logic dies. So how do bad emotions become the good emotion that we call love? Well, it's not by repressing your emotions so you feel nothing and do nothing for a life with no emotion is no life at all. It's not by repressing your emotions and faking new emotions. In other words, it's not by works righteousness, which is just nauseating as hell. It's not by repressing your emotions and faking new emotions, and it's not by simply expressing your emotions, for just like Mr. Spock said, that can be very unhealthy for those around you. It's not by trying to take more knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then, you know, trying harder and harder to make your dead life live. It's not by trying to live your life which is already imprisoned in death. It can only happen when you come back to the tree and instead of trying to live your life, you begin to let the life live you. What I'm trying to say is... Doctor, I'm seeking a means of escape. Will you please be brief? Well, what I'm trying to say is you saved my life in the arena. Yes, that's quite true. I'm trying to thank you, you pointed-eared hobgoblin. Oh, yes, you humans have that emotional need to express gratitude. You're welcome, I believe, is the correct response. However, Doctor, you must remember that I'm entirely motivated by logic. The loss of our ship's surgeon, whatever I may think of his relative skill, would mean a reduction in the efficiency of the Enterprise, and there's no lying. You're not afraid to die, Spock. You're more afraid of living. Each day you stay alive is just one more day you might slip and let your human half peek out. You all know why we love Spock, right? (laughs) He's like each one of us. Half machine and half human. And he's afraid to let the human out. The man out. The eschatos man out. He's afraid to let Jesus rise from the tomb that is himself. He's afraid to lose his life and find his life lost in the logic of love. He's in prison for he's afraid to let love live his life. For see, it comes to him and it comes to you as drama. 
the drama that is actually your life. As I was saying, this is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the logos. This is the logic of God. Another way to say that, this is the logic of love. This is the emotion behind all motion. In this is love. In this is love, and it's love that creates everything that's anything and then binds it all together in a communion that's called life. This is the life. The life. And you see, the life must live you, which you will experience as drama, or to say it more biblically, the passion of the Christ. You will experience it as pain and forgiveness. You will experience it as sorrow that turns into unspeakable joy. And not because of you, but because of Christ rising within you. God does not save you from drama. He saves you with his drama. The passion of the Christ. His passion in you. Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Remember, he said, am I in the place of God? The obvious answer is no. But was God in the place of Joseph? The obvious answer is yes. Joseph looks just like Jesus. Man cannot make himself God. That's evil. But God can make himself man. That's good. Paula Darcy writes this, God comes to us disguised as our life. He comes to us as the days of our lives. <sighs> Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. He comes to us as the days of our lives, and we must live those days. Ephesians 2.10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should live them. Jean Guion wrote this, perhaps you have heard that you should think on the different experience of Jesus, experiences of Jesus Christ, but it is far better for you to bear, to carry these experiences of Jesus Christ within yourself. In Genesis 50, that concept is described as Forgiveness. Joseph bears the sins of his brothers, but Joseph also bears the passion of the Christ within his own body. In other words, Jesus bears the sins of Israel, but within Joseph, his body. Joseph feels what Jesus is feeling within him. He weeps Jesus' tears. And experiences Jesus' laughter. Love is the dream. Faith, hope, and love is the dream rising from the dead within Joseph. Forgiveness is letting the passions of the Christ flow through you like living water through a pipe or blood through a blood vessel, a vessel of mercy rather than a vessel of wrath. We become a vessel of wrath when we seize control of the logic of love and refuse to feel the feelings of God for we think that, you know, we'll die when in reality we're already dead. And God is calling us to rise from the dead with his word. And so... The Word, who is the logic of love, who is the life, the truth, and the way, the way through all the drama and home to the dream, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And he took the cup 
saying, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. Poured out for the forgiveness, the letting of sins. (laughs) Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the passion of God. This is the logic of love. This is the emotion behind all motion. If you think that this is simply a tree of knowledge, you'll try to steal the logic in order to avoid the passion. So this doesn't happen to you. You'll try to steal the logic to avoid the passion, which turns out to actually be your life. But, if you trust that this is also the tree of life, you'll surrender your life to the logic of love and begin to live the passion of the Christ. And you will trust, for at this tree God has planted a seed in you, a seed which isn't simply your dreams. It's his dream. You will be what you are, the image and likeness of God. It's your birthright. Romans 8, 16. We are the children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. He's our brother. Provided we suffer with him, sim pasco, feel what he feels, that we may also be glorified with him, sim doxazo, experience the glory he experiences. You see, sun, moon, and stars, they actually do bow down to our brother, Jesus. Romans 8, 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons, plural, the sons of God. That includes daughters of God. That's, you know, Bible talk. Sons of God. Sun, moon, and stars. They're also going to bow down to you. Provided you feel what Jesus feels. And what Jesus feels is the emotion that, well, actually it's the emotion that you refuse to feel right now. So I'm just saying, bring your feelings to the table of the Lord this morning and every morning. Another way to say that is just be honest. So say to Jesus, don't try to fake it. Just say to Jesus, I feel like crap. Today, Jesus, I just feel like a piece of shit. Or maybe you feel happy. Tell him you feel happy or Maybe you feel sad or, or proud or ashamed. Or say, I feel horny, Jesus. Or I'm so thirsty, Jesus. Or angry or sad or just depressed beyond words. And then ingest the word. The logic of love. And then say, Jesus... How do you feel? Better yet, how do we feel? That's the way home to who it is that we truly are. Not the dreamer, but the dream. And so close your eyes and go into your inner garden. How do you feel? 
Maybe you feel like all your brothers just sold you and threw you in a pit. Maybe you feel like Pharaoh just called and put you in charge of his kingdom. Well, Jesus is in your garden. Whatever your feelings were or are, just give them to Jesus. And now they're his feelings. Some of them may look just the same. Some of them may change in character. Like vengeance somehow looks different in his hands. Anger looks different in his hands. But give him your feelings. And now you weep with the one who weeps. Do you understand your feeling, his feelings? You're coming alive. And laugh with the one who laughs as he walks out of the tomb. You're coming alive. He's living his life in you because it's just like he said. You are his body. And you see, this shared drama brings you home to whom it is that we are. We're actually the body of Christ. And we didn't have time to talk about this, but now you can also uh, weep with your neighbor, the person next to you. And you can laugh with your neighbor. So listen closely. You don't have to fix your neighbor. But Jesus does tell you to feel what your neighbor feels. And then you'll discover that what really needs to be fixed has just been fixed. Your one body, motivated by love, the logic that is God. So just talk to Jesus about your feelings. Say thank you for letting me weep your tears, Jesus, because I know, I know you. <laughs> Not as an idea, but like a spouse, a husband, a bride. I know you. And thank you for letting me... Um, Smile your smile and laugh your laugh and celebrate your victory that has now become our victory. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for my life because it's our life and it's good. Amen.